I hope you realize that last week we put flooring down and none of you noticed. This week we only did a portion of the flooring. This is all brand new. The stage is all brand new. And if you haven't noticed how different it is, it makes me sad. Because this was a tremendous labor. I watched three guys work on this thing for an entire week. A week. Just the stage. Uh, also, if you're upstairs, you're enjoying, I see some of you are enjoying a brand new balcony with that fresh new car smell up there. We did keep the one pew. For those of you that feel like church has gotten too comfortable, we did keep one of the original pews. It's the, it's the carpeted kind of pew that's up there, so you can still do your penance up there if you need to do that. The original pew from the original church is still in the foyer, which I love to sit on that one. That's a two-seater. So if you need some contemplative time by yourself, you can also sit in that one as well. But the good news is you guys did so well with the chair removal last week that we felt obliged to give you another chance. <laughs> if you missed out on it and you're like, it wasn't fair watching all the men sweating and groaning and moaning and having such a... We are going to try it again after church today because as you realize, this one has not been replaced. The stuff that came in was not what we ordered so we got to roll with it as everything is. But uh, we will try it again after church, so please feel free to stay and utilize your muscles. And just for some of you that were worried, we were trying to paint, we were experimenting, Robin and I were trying to save $3 with the chairs and paint, and we had a lot of people sit in the painted chair, and we realized something, it wasn't going to work. So there's also more surprises in store for you in the near future church, so just keep showing up keep trusting God. The back room is done. If you haven't seen the green room is where the older gentlemen on Wednesday night come. Um, it's also been completely revamped. The kitchenette and the bathroom back there are done. Keep us in prayer for across the street as we're still kind of working with the city to kind of maybe have to do some renovation and remodeling that wasn't planned on for the front of the building. It's gotten a little bit, you know, pull the lair back, pull the lair back, and we found out it's not as good as we hoped. So, um, you just got to replace what's got to be replaced. It's 75 years, right? This is the 75th anniversary of the church. And in Costa Mesa, that's pretty good, right? I mean, in California, yeah, exactly. A hundred years in California is like prehistoric, right? I mean, we're not, we're not that old. It's not like you can go to Israel and find something 4,000 years old. There's, I mean, we have a couple guys in the green room that are in the high numbers, but not that old, right? The green room is fabulous. Like, during the entire time of construction, those guys continued to meet, even when it was a debris field in there, right? There was, like, two exposed chairs left and whatever, and they're moving plastic bags and paint buckets. It's like, we will meet. We will. So they came in this week, and they're ready to meet, and there, there was no room. Like, it was carpeted up to the wall, and there was... So they went across the street and met, and it was, it was just fabulous. So thank you guys for being uh, cooperative with us. But yeah, we'll give you another chance uh, after church today. So we are in Acts chapter 9. Uh, I'm going to be the second part of it, 19 through 31 today. If you missed out last week on Saul's conversion, I would encourage you to go back in and kind of revamp. No Bibles yet, Marcus, because the chairs got all moved. And so if you don't have a Bible, today is a good reminder why having a Bible is so important. Um, I'm sure we can get you a Bible. <laughs> I call you out on TV too, right? Don't worry, there's more than one Mark. Um, they don't know that it's Discano, so uh, you're fine. Good, there you go. Um, but if you missed out on Saul's conversion last week, I would highly encourage you to go back. It, he's not only a prolific person in the New Testament, but his conversion is super significant. And I think even coming into this week, we're going to see some things, maybe some things that kind of give us some understanding, maybe some handles that we can kind of figure out what salvation means to us. But I also noticed last week something happened, and so I feel the need to kind of publicly confess. I enjoy that every once in a while to share my behind the scenes with you. Somebody last week was so convinced that I, like Saul, was so fervent that either I had told somebody what they had done during the week, or that the Lord maybe or didn't maybe, but they were, I was speaking to them directly. And they wanted to know something. Pastor Jeff, are you mad at me? Are you seriously, do you know what happened? And my answer to him and to her and to you and to all of you is no, okay? I have no idea who I'm speaking to at any other time other than myself. The truth about God's word is it says for a pastor to be able to give it to you, we first have to examine ourselves. And so my week is already kind of filled with all the different disclosures that God's showing me during the week, and I'm trying to process that. 
But there definitely is a sense of urgency in my life. If you don't know my story, if you don't know what's going on, you can ask. I won't share it this morning, but there's a sense of urgency in my life that I feel like every time I get to share might be the last. So why not make sure that if God's put something on my heart, share it in such a way that you know and understand um, as Josh so boldly shared with the church. Sometimes we have an opportunity to walk with somebody in life and we don't realize that that might be the last day or the last week that that individual has to walk and to be shared with. Amen? And because of that, there's a sense of urgency whenever we get a chance to sit in God's house and hear his word that I want to invoke in you and say, hey, look, today is the day of the Lord, right? This is the day that the Lord has made. So for me to rejoice and be glad in it means I have to be fervent when I give the word. So I just want to encourage you. I'm not mad, super happy, feeling great. God is blessing but uh, yeah, when I speak God's word, it's like a sprinkler. Like I kind of start here and I did, 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 did here and then I go back here. I'm just kind of looking. If I catch eyes with you and you look at me and I'm looking at you, it doesn't mean I'm talking directly to you. Uh, if you feel like I am, maybe you should just take a little walk after church and say, okay, Lord, was that, was that it for me? I mean, maybe it was for you. So uh, if anything in today sounds specifically for you, then you know it's from the Lord. Um, I titled the message, The Miracle of Hope. And for those of you that are kind of struggling with life right now, maybe you're kind of feeling a little overwhelmed, I hope that this morning that the hope that I'm going to share with you will really kind of give you perspective. Because what happened with Saul was he had this idea about what he understood and what he knew. And in one day, in one walk, and in one moment, everything changed. To the point that he's blind, waiting for the Lord to speak to him, and everything he formerly understood about himself and his life is completely changed. And I believe that what happens in that is salvation. What happens in every miracle of God is in salvation, God changes us. Literally, the scripture says that, right? It affirms that, that we are a new creation in Christ. And because of that, what happens is this hopelessness of the world, that he has to be the protector of Judaism, that he has to kill everyone that's not doing it correctly, that hopelessness of this system where he constantly has to do 613 rules and regulations that he has to follow every single day is met in one single conversation where the Lord himself says, Saul, why are you kicking against the goad? You know who I am. Do you know who I am? Because if you don't know who I am, let me tell you, and you're going about it all wrong. And what happens is that is the miracle of salvation. Now think about that. There's two different kinds of understanding about a miracle. You could be miraculously healed, and you could be miraculously saved. I say the key to that is to understand miraculously saved. Because if, if you're miraculously healed, we all saw when Pastor Bill had that uh, situation with his side and we prayed, and he was miraculously healed, right? Lazarus in the Bible, miraculously healed. Coming up in Acts, Dorcas is going to be miraculously healed. But if you're miraculously healed, the problem is at some point future down the road, you have to die again, right? But if you're miraculously saved, then what does that give you when it comes to death the next time you face it, right? You have a new hope, a quantifiable hope now that death no longer means the same thing to you that it once did before. So I always say the miracle of your salvation is the most significant thing because if you can come back from that and say, hey, look, I now have a hope that if I die, it's gain, and that gives you a way to die, like Stephen, a way to die that even in death you can now share and show the love of Christ. If the Lord so happens to call you home, there's a way that we can go that shows the world around us that we have hope. You say, Pastor Jeff, sometimes I think pastors enjoy you know, liberties about understanding these things. Seriously, hope is quantifiable. Yes, so I got really a wild hair about it this week, and I typed in things, experiments about hope. Would you believe there's been quite a few experiments about hope? And for those of you that are animal lovers, this next story may hurt you a little bit, but there's something really significant that I want to share. 1950s, uh, a couple scientists sitting around with white lab rats trying to figure out what to do that would be useful for society. They placed a single white lab rat into a container of water, and they wanted to see how long a single white lab rat would swim of its own volition. They found out something. Every single lab rat had the same pattern. They would start by swimming, because that's a natural instinct. They're good swimmers. Then they would kind of stop and try to explore the, you know, the surroundings of the container. And then they would kind of realize what the situation would, and they would all dive down. Upon diving down and exploring, something would happen in that simple white lab rat's mind, which would then make them realize the situation was hopeless, and they would expire. They would give up the will to swim. 
The, the experiment continued in such a way that the people decided to do something. At the point the rabbit kind of swum around and dove down and looked like it was going to come up and give up, they simply removed the rat, gave it a small break for one minute, and then placed it back in the water. And something seriously miraculous happened. The rat not only had hope instilled in it, but the rat had hope enough to swim on an average 60 hours. So it went from a 2 to 10 minute kind of expiration time to the first time they actually reached in and pulled the rat. If they pulled the rat out a second time, sometimes the rat would swim for two and three days. And it would swim with a veracity and a tenacity that would make you think that it knew something. And literally what they said was, okay, something's happening in this small lab animal that we can now quantify. And they gave it a term, hope. The individual animals had been given the hope that there was a different outcome. And in that different outcome, they found something in that. And I couldn't help but think about my, my life, my people, the church. How many of us have been up against the wall? How many of us have been in a situation where we're swimming against the current, where we're kicking against the goad, and someone reaches down into our life and gives us an answer or gives us a solution or brings us a meal, right, when we're just up against the wall and feeling like it's hopeless. Why am I even swimming? What's the point of this? And in that two minutes or three minutes of reprieve that we have, maybe it's a prayer. We don't even know often what it is. But in that we have a small reprieve from that, something happens to us and we're reminded, no, death doesn't have the final say in my life. I have someone who's watching over everything that I say and I do. And for me, if it is to be death, it's to gain. And then they put us back into that water and all of a sudden we swim with the tenacity like we've never had before. It's a simple experiment, but it just reminded me something. The hope of Jesus Christ Church is something that's so quantifiable in our life that even if your friend gives you advice that doesn't turn out to be the answer, that hope that they gave you could be life-changing. And that's something that I think is so amazing about who this guy is because he comes down there with a tenacity to go and to kill and to take every single one of these believers and put it on them and say, you know what, you've ruined the faith and because of you, it's a pleasure for me to get rid of you. And yet God's going to tap him on the shoulder and give him some time to think about it. And this Saul of Tarsus guy is going to be Paul. And on this guy, the, the Lord is going to build this little pebble, this small rock. The Lord is going to build the church. What is so powerful about newfound hope? The thing that's so powerful about newfound hope is later on when, when Paul, when Saul is stoned, and he is stoned multiple times, when he is shipwrecked, he is shipwrecked multiple times. He is alone in the day. He's alone at night. He's wandering in the sea. And every single situation that he is in, in Lystra when he's stoned, as he comes back from consciousness, from being stoned, he simply removes the rocks that are covering his body. He dusts the, the dust and the debris off. He turns himself around, and he walks straight back into the city that just stoned him. When he's on an island in Malta and the natives are trying to build a fire and he's come all the way out of his time and place on the ship just to even get there and they're starting to build the fire and he's grabbing wood to help, uh, help assemble the fire, a viper comes out and from the fire it's uh, agitated and it strikes down upon his arm and the natives pull back and they think to themselves, oh, justice has been served in this moment for their gods have reconciled that he must be a false prophet. And he simply shakes the snake off into the fire and continues to do what? Speak the name of Jesus. Church, there's a quantifiable hope that's going to come in Saul's testimony and Paul's testimony today. And I'm praying right now in advance for you that you realize that just because you are a chosen instrument like he was, you can be chosen, but it doesn't mean you will not be oppressed. You can be knocked down. You can be kicked off your horse. You can be hurt. And even to the point of broken, but to suffer for the Lord is a privilege. And we, like Saul, want to suffer for the Lord because there is no greater way to be closer to his heart. Paul was shown how to suffer. Paul was shown how to be oppressed. But he was also shown that there was a hope in the Lord that made it all worthwhile. So if you will pray with me, we will begin this reading. This is in Acts chapter 9, 19 through 31. Father God, I just thank you for the morning, and thank you for the opportunity to see your hand, and see your face, and see your word spoken true in this situation in our lives. I know there's a hopelessness right now that the world seems to be pouring into our cups, 
and filling us with a sense of it's just not worth it. Every time we turn left and every time we turn right, we're running into another situation and another scenario where it seems like the world is having a victory in it. And we're just like, what is the point of this? And Father, I pray this morning that you would speak your truth in this incredible account of Saul. You would speak your truth to us and remind us that just because we're opposed and just because we suffer doesn't mean the kingdom of God is not advancing. As a matter of fact, it means that it's advancing. For in suffering, in this opposition, do you do some of your greatest work because you find that the humble, Father, are the ones that can be blessed. So may, may we humble ourselves this morning. May you take away the sense of pride and arrogance that says that we have to understand in order to believe, that we have to see it in order to believe, and simply remind ourselves, blessed are those who haven't seen and yet still believe. Father, we do it all in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. All right, let's make an attempt to do some reading, and then we'll break it apart here. So starting in verse 1, 19, starting in verse 19, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, and at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And all those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who called on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priest? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Much more on that to come. And after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. And when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him and not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles so that they... Excuse me. So he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and the Lord had spoken to him. And now in Damascus, he had preached fearlessly the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. And when the believers learned about this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened living in the fear of the Lord, encouraged by the Holy Spirit, and it increased in numbers. So the first thing that we're going to kind of see in this whole thing is that Saul is in the midst of a true life crisis. Saul is in the midst of going from coming down to kill people to turning out to turning around and spending time with these people. Matter of fact, if you actually kind of look at it figuratively, he's coming down to attack a people group He's then being met by the Lord, and then the Lord is reassigning the very group that he was coming to attack for him to become one of those. As I mentioned to you last week, in the time that Paul decided to be publicly baptized, what he literally was walking away from was his Judaism. He was walking away from his faith, and he was walking into this other newfound group. He was leaving everything in his hometown for everything that was unknown to him, a people group in Damascus that he had just discovered. He tells himself, I'm one of them, at least what he hopes. We're going to find out. It doesn't necessarily turn out to be that way. And as Ananias prays over him, which Ananias, as we re last week we found out, Ananias was quite hesitant to even pray over him, Saul is literally reborn. Saul then becomes Paul. From this point on, we probably will just refer to him as Paul. From that moment, we find up literally right away that he begins sitting at the table and filling up his tank, right? He's putting some simple food into his body. And then verse 20 says, he wastes no time and he immediately began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue and tell everybody that he is the son of God. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about to my salvation, let's see, 1978, 79, maybe 14 years old. When I first found out about the Lord, I didn't have a lot to say to other people. I wanted to say a lot of things. I was pretty excited, but I just didn't know much. But one of the things that's so exciting to me about a new believer is, even if a new believer has nothing to say, they're excited about it, and it's contagious, right? Paul is one of those people, though, that he's not necessarily just a new believer. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews, so he has a tremendous amount of previous insight. 
Now, all of a sudden, what we're seeing is with the power of the Holy Spirit in his mind, he's not, able, he's not only able to understand this, but he's starting to make connections from the understanding of how the Jews saw the Torah in the first five books of the Bible to how this is actually making sense. Unfortunately, from the very beginning, though, he, like us, when you find this exciting, really wonderful thing that you want to share with other people, there's instantly kind of this kibosh. There's instantly kind of this, you, you share it with someone and you set it down in front of them and they kind of look at you like, hmm, I don't know if that's kind of what I think or what I believe. And he's quickly kind of turning himself to the shadows. He has this new hope. He has this boldness. He has a desire to want to speak. But all of a sudden, it kind of seems like from the very beginning, there's this kind of hand out in front of him saying, hold. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, there's probably a time and a place for all of us where we've run into the hand so many times that it's just easier for us to hold. It's easier for us to just think about all the indifference that we wouldn't have to go through if we wouldn't share. And I want to encourage you something this morning without a doubt on this first point is I pray that you would never give up the tenacity and the urgency to share your faith every day, every hour, every moment. But verse 21 reminds us something. Because he was trained up to be a Pharisee, because he was trained up, when those people heard him, they continued to be amazed. And they kept saying, but isn't this the guy who's coming down to destroy us in Jerusalem? Isn't this the guy whose purpose was to find everyone who's a believer and have them killed? Okay, if this is the same guy, maybe he's just using this. Maybe this is a new technique or a tactic that he's using to kind of wheel us in, and he's going to do the same thing. But it's not. When Saul finally gets to the point that he gets to share with them what's significant, he tells them that Jesus is the true Messiah, and he, over, he overwhelms them with the truth. He's literally able to give an apologetic to defend his faith from the very beginning. I, I couldn't help but think about this. I think what's happening is the Spirit of God is taking those years and years of studying the Torah, the years and years of kind of thinking that God's word was one thing and saying one thing, and now all of a sudden the Lord is rearranging it and making connections, and those synapses in his brain and in his mind are all making connections, and he's starting to see the pages jump off and things are starting to align. And even though it was there the whole time, they need someone like Paul to make the connections. I can't help but think about a passage that says, blessed are the feet of someone who brings the good news of the word of God, because that is kind of your goal. When you get to come to somebody with the word of God, when you get to come to to somebody with an understanding that God has given you some type of connection in God's word, and you get to share that with them. When someone really has a willing heart, and they too get to hear something like that, there seems to be a, a shared joy that we have in that. And verse 22 tells us, because of this, Saul kept increasing in strength. And increasing in strength meant something else. Now he's confounding the very Jews that he was once serving. Now, these Jews would have all been raised with him kind of in the same capacity. So to be a Pharisee meant you had to study the first five books of the Bible and possibly even have them fully memorized, right? We're talking a tremendous amount of knowledge about God's Word. They would have been reading and studying every single day. And yet now he's taking all these connections, and now he's making all these connections, and people are hearing him, and they're confounded by what he seems to understand. And I can't help but think about in the very back of his mind is that conversation with Stephen is that conversation of watching that first Christian martyr die at his feet and the way that Stephen died. Remember I told you at the beginning of the sermon, there's a way that we get to die because of the hope of Christ that is different than how the world dies. And maybe all of us should just look at death differently because if to die is to gain, then we shouldn't be afraid of death. Whatever death is, it's an opportunity to see the Lord work in something. Stephen used his death to drop this seed right at Saul's feet. And now Saul has received it. And as a man of God, Paul is now watching that seed take presence in his life. And he's confounding people with this newfound understanding. And when verse 23 says, after many days it elapsed, the Jews began plotting to kill him. Uh, it's an interesting phrase, many days. It's not like an hour or two hours or two days or three days. It's actually a couple of years. So what happens is Paul begins this faithful, 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 faithfulness of just sharing the word of God every single day. And it doesn't take very long, but the very people that he once worked for are now doing the exact same thing that he once did before. They're plotting to kill him. And I don't know about you, but uh, no one's plotting to kill me that I know of right now. I'm not really on anyone's hit list, which is good. But I can tell you this. <clears throat> when we decided to kind of start the whole renovation at the church and do some different things, <clears throat> if you make an honest effort to make a difference for the kingdom of God, if you and your household sit down and choose this day who you will serve, I can absolutely assure you one thing. The opposition, spiritually speaking, will arise. 
If you want to live a nice, quiet, peaceful life, do everything you can to not speak the name of Jesus. And you might actually obtain what it is you're looking for. But I want to encourage you something. That's not what God called us to do, right? And so from the very beginning, Saul, Paul, goes out and says, hey, look, I've been chosen by God. I don't know if you think of yourself as a chosen instrument by God, but one of the beautiful things I have in my life right now is I get to see a lot of different instruments. I get a chance to see a lot of different medical procedures, and I learn something about each and every one of them. Although I traditionally don't like any of them, I'm really grateful for them, right? I'm really grateful because each one of them gives that doctor, that skilled individual, a chance to do something and perform something in my life that very few other people on the planet Earth can do. And that's what God's actually doing with us. Each one of you is a skilled instrument. You are learning things, you're absorbing things, you're seeing things, and you can go do things that very few other people can do. And there's other people in your life, in your oikos, that are all situated around you, and they're waiting for you to perform that task. And just like Saul, it may take many days for you to do that, but you want to start a lifestyle of just every day faithfully trusting God. Every day trusting God. We actually find out in um, Galatians 1 how long he was actually studying for and kind of doing it all. It says, uh, Galatians 1:17. I didn't go to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia, which is kind of the southern desert area there. Later, I returned to Damascus after three years. I then went up to Jerusalem and got acquainted with Cephas and stayed there. So Paul took three years coming out of the chutes to go prep himself. Now, here's an interesting point for you guys. How many of you, when you first came into faith, took three years to prep yourself to get ready to share the faith? Some of you have been walking for the Lord a lot longer than three years and still haven't really taken the time to deep dive and to prepare yourself, right? If you know you're going to be opposed, if you know that by sharing the word of God, you invite opposition in, but yet God calls us to be a chosen instrument to suffer for his behalf, then what have you done to prepare yourself? I can't help but think about marriage counseling. Uh, I am someone that really enjoys doing marriage counseling with couples and I've tried to involve that in every single person that I've married is at least 8 to 12 hours minimum. Some couples I've done as many as 40 and 60 hours of counseling. And that's because statistics show that most couples will spend two to 400 hours in preparation for the event. 200 to 400 hours in preparation for a single event for one to three hours. The average couple here will spend between 60 and $100,000 to do a wedding. That's just average. But if you look at that same comparison, how much time an average couple will spend in marriage, the average couple will spend less than three hours total in their entirety of their marriage. Something seems to be off there, right? Okay, if I'm willing to make my whole life about the event, then what I'm putting a value on is the feeling and the moment and the whatever, and I'm misunderstanding that the event is for the rest of my life of that individual. So part of what I love to drive home in that marriage counseling is like, this is how we get ready to do battle. And this is how we do battle together, okay? We, you as a couple, you don't get to battle against the world. You guys battle together. And then everyone else in the world is going to come, try to come against you. But you guys must stay together. You can argue, you can have indifferences, but the Bible says, don't let the sun go down upon your anger. So basically six to six, if you're looking at a time watch for biblically speaking, you do that in such a way, why? To prepare yourself for battle. You prepare yourself to be opposed. You do that because you're a chosen instrument and you have to stay together. And Paul's saying this, if I do that and I stay together with what the Lord is promising, something will happen. What happens is I get to sit Shiva with the Lord for 14 more years. You know, as soon as he's done with three years, Paul's going to take an extended time of doing the same thing, of going out to the desert and sitting Shiva with the Lord. Now, sitting Shiva is an interesting term. It comes from uh, the time someone would spend in grief. So if you lost a, if you lost a family member and you needed some time to, to, to sit and be alone with it, you would sit Shiva with the Lord for seven days. You would sit and literally have that time to grieve and process and make peace with it. Paul says, hey, look, this is a pattern I learned with my three years. I'm going to make this a long-term pattern. I'm going to sit with the Lord. I'm going to sit out here in the desert, and I'm going to remove all the distractions from myself, and I'm going to make sure that as a chosen instrument, I have what I need to be successful. What does he learn from that? He's going to learn that the scripture promises him that you will not always escape danger, but when danger comes and you encounter it, that hope that we talked about, that encounter with hope will always change the outcome for you, okay? We're not trying to pray away. We're not, we're not trying to pray away the dangers in our life. You know, Lord, 
um, the situation with my child. I know some of you have prodigals and I'm involved in your life. You know, the situation with my prodigal, I just pray today, Father, that you would just reconcile this prodigal. Church, you may have a prodigal for your entire life. That prodigal may be something that the Lord has given you, like the thorn in Paul's Galatian eye that he couldn't see. The thorn is there to remind you that every day you're under opposition. Every day is a battle. And every day, just like that child is wayward of yours, is to remind yourself, you need to be prepared to do battle today. What are you doing to be prepared to do battle for the Lord today? Right? You think you're the only parent sitting in here right now that's wondering, where is my child? Sometimes like the thief on the cross, you could watch that child run, run, run its entire life. His entire life the thief ran, and his entire life he ran until one day he got nailed to a cross and he was done running. Right? I am still convinced, and I'll be telling the story, and I will tell it to you at least a hundred more times in my life. But why is the thief in the cross in the Bible? I am convinced it is there because that mom was sitting Shiva with the Lord for her entire life, praying, what about my son? What about my son? What about my son? What about my son? And on that day, he got the luckiest break in his life when he died next to the king of kings because he did not die for no reason. And Jesus did not waste one single drop of blood on the cross. He took his time to take those two guys who were mocking him right in the beginning. They're mocking him and they're making fun of him in the beginning. But he walks them through to what? To the miracle of salvation and the hope. One of the worst prayers ever given in the Bible. He doesn't do the Romans road. He doesn't confess his sins. He doesn't come down and get baptized. He's never done a single thing. He is nailed to a cross. But he simply says, remember me. But what a powerful prayer to remember when you're sitting with the Lord and confound those around you. Why? Because he has the king of kings next to him, and he looks at him, and he tells him, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. That mom had to hear that. There, there has to be a mom. That, that, that I'm convinced that it's for every prodigal parent that has ever held that torch up and say, when will my day come? When will my prodigal come home? You sit Shiva with the Lord. You sit with the Lord and you hold fast to the hope that is in that salvation. It's not a miraculous healing. You're not Lazarus, mom. Lazarus had to die again. You had to go through that process once with Lazarus. You had to go through it again, right? They were crying when Jesus arrived. If you were just here, what took you so long? Aren't you Jesus? It was because he needed to die for you to see something, that there's something more significant than living or dying. It's salvation in Christ. It's eternity with me. Because I can raise Lazarus right now. I will. Lazarus, come forth. <laughs> Covered mummy, you know, the original mummy. I don't know if that would have been traumatic or what that would have looked like. But he had to die again. The miracle of our lives, guys, is, church, is salvation. You don't have to die again. You will never experience the taste of death if you are a follower of Christ. And he's amazing people. And they're looking at him and they're confounded. And what's the result of doing these good things for the Lord? Verse 24, they decide to kill him. So they start watching the gates and they're making a plan. And he doesn't know what to do, but all of a sudden he has disciples. He has people that are following him and taking care of him. And so they lower him through an opening in the wall in a large basket. Here's a question for you. What large wicker basket is available 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem to be lowered in? Any of you think about this beautiful scenario he's in? You guys know the big green trash cans that uh, Burtech gives us? I took mine home and washed them this week, by the way. I, had rent a, I got a power washer church. Not a fun experience, okay? That's a trash can. A basket big enough for a human 2,000 years ago? I went back and looked. There's only one basket available in the hole in the wall that you could lower someone in. It's a trash can, okay? This should read, the Hebrew of Hebrews, the Jew of Jews, the Pharisee of Pharisees, the one who came to kill these people is now being lowered in a trash can at night by these people. Aren't you glad you came to the Lord? Some of you feel like you've been lowered in a trash can recently? You're like, what did I sign up for? What, what is seriously... I, I want to apologize to you. Any of you said you found a pastor or a church that said, come to Jesus, pray to Jesus, and watch all your troubles go away. Did any of you experience that? Any of you down-to-earth Christians ever experience, come to Jesus, and all your problems go away? No. If you made an absolute profession of faith to the living, breathing God who died on that cross, 
when you made a profession of faith, the next day it started to fall apart. It started to unravel. I got people in this church finally that are making some movement in their faith and they're starting to feel that tension right away. And it's like, thank you for that tension. Now you know you're alive. We need that tension. We need to know why our parents are looking at us differently and why our husbands and spouses, people that have been together for many years, because one spouse just made a profession of faith and something changed. Well, what changed, Pastor Jeff? I don't know, but it's tangible. I can tell you it's tangible because the other spouse who knows them better than anyone else says something happened. What are your options? Did you cheat on me? Did you, you know, right? They go right to the good things. I know you're doing something terrible. And you're like, no, I met the risen Savior. And he changed my life. And I'm going to get baptized. And I'm going to read my Bible. And I'm going to try to figure this out. And I want to share this with you. I know I came in town, you know, the back of a caravan with the Sanhedrin's blessings and power. And I know I'm leaving town in a trash can in the middle of the night. But something changed. I'd rather be in a trash can, being lowered, and running away from it, from doing God's word, than I would standing in front of the Sanhedrin with all the authority and power of the magistrate to go kill Christians. Right? I, I told my wife when I was going to give the rat story, and she's like, I don't know if, you know, killing rats in church is a great example. <laughs> I don't know if being lowered in a trash can is a great example either, okay? But I know this. I feel like a rat sometimes, right? Like, I feel like I'm just swimming around, and I'm, I don't know if the water's heating up or, you know, the whole thing. How do you, you slowly bring it to I don't know what's going on. It just, feels like, it just feels like I'm going through the motions. And it feels like I'm the only one sometimes, like, is there anyone else out here not sleeping at night? Is there anyone else out here going, I mean, I see dead people. Where's that Sixth Sense movie? Where's the grossness of the hideousness of that movie? Like, I'm seeing dead people. Are you guys seeing dead people? I'm watching people walk up and down the street, and I'm thinking, they're dead. I'm watching the mental health of some of these people, and I'm thinking, they're dead. And we're losing ground on this stuff. We just step over it, right? Just step around it. What's wrong with us? Are we losing sensitivity to the very thing? And maybe being lowered in a trash can is what we need. I'll tell you this. I learned something this weekend. When I cleaned my trash can, the old stuff had to come out, and I was power washing it, and the first shot came right into my face. I got a chance to eat some of the stuff in my trash can. I'm pretty sure that I have some kind of infectious disease roaming in my body right now. And as I worked my tail off to clean that first trash can, and I looked at the second one, I thought, you know what? We're just going to use one can from here on out. There's really no reason to use that second can. And then I laid it on the ground, and I told myself, man, what have I told my kids all my life? There's one way to do things. Church, there's one way to do things. You know this, right? You know the answer. We're not moral. There's only one way to do something, the right way. Just because the other way is available doesn't mean it's an option for us. That's not an option for him anymore. You're a chosen instrument, and as a chosen instrument, you will suffer. But you need to have a different mindset about your suffering. It's a blessing for you to suffer. Why? Because you're prideful, and you're arrogant, and you're prone to boast, and all that stuff's going to ruin your walk. So get in that stupid trash can, and as you bounce down the wall, think about this, what a blessing it is that God's waiting for you because that's how they lowered the trash out of the city. And today, now you get to be associated with something so significant that your friends helped smuggle you out of town. The chosen life is difficult, but it's worth it. And so he tries to join the other disciples in verse 26. And then I looked up that word tried. I'm like, what does it mean, tried? Do you, do you try to join a church or do you join a church? And literally what happened was, remember, he took three years in Arabia to prepare himself, and for the three years he tried to join the church. Tried, 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 tried. Why couldn't he join the church? Is joining a church that difficult? It is if they don't believe that you're a follower. It is if they don't believe that the conversion on the road to Damascus was actually real. They still thought it was a ploy. And so he has to try, he has to try, he has to try, and I'm thinking to himself, he's no longer a member of the Sanhedrin, the elite of the elite. He's no longer a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's now an outcast, even with his own people. The very people he once came to persecute, now they won't even take him in. 
who does Paul actually have left? Jesus. Church, if you ever feel like you're trying to get in with people and they're making it too hard, and you're like, what is the point of this? My own church won't even let me in? You're in good company. At no time was Saul or Paul being punished. He was being trained. Okay? At no time of your spiritual walk are you being punished for being a follower of Christ. You're being trained. Big difference. Okay? You need that training, just like the athlete who does push-ups and sit-ups and works the speed bag. You need that to be able to go in there and fight. You need that for the long haul. He wants to hang with these people, and they're afraid of him. They still hear about his old life and how ominous he was. And yet he says, hey, look, guys, I gave my life to Christ. When I got baptized, I walked away from everything and everyone I knew. That's what it meant to be baptized back in the day. You walked away from it all. So who's going to cover for him? Who's going to speak up for him? Barnabas the encourager, verse 27 says this. So Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked with him and that he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. Church, sometimes we need to phone a friend. Right? Sometimes we need the Lord to step in and intervene for us and send us that advocate for us that defends us when we can't even defend ourselves. Have you ever felt defenseless? Have you ever felt like, does anyone even see me? Who would rally for me? Well, amongst your church body, I hope that at, if that ever happens to you, I hope that there's someone in this body that knows you well enough that would rally for you. I can tell you, I made some notes this week. On Wednesday night... When that room was not prepared for anyone to go in there, I had seven to nine older guys that whether or not we let them in there or they kicked the door down, they were going in there, right? There's an accountability in a man of God, a woman of God that says, hey, no matter what happens, no matter why it happens, no matter who it happens with, I got your back. And we're going in that room and we're reading the word of God, and we're praying, and we are going to continue to honor Merv, we're going to continue to honor John, and we're going to continue to honor any other older man who walks behind us into this room and says, what does it look like to be a follower of God? Now, is that changing the world in any way, scope, or form? Did any of you have your world altered by the way those men approached that room on Wednesday night? And I would tell you, be careful how you answer that. Because the Bible says this, the prayer of a righteous person availeth much. God bless you, Sandy. Availeth much. Not a little. Much. One righteous, humbled follower of Christ praying fervently for some other brother or sister does things that you have no understanding. Why do I know that? Because later in the week, myself had a rough situation happening last weekend. Didn't call anybody, didn't tell anybody in traditional mannerisms for myself. Came to church the following week and I had one of the small little prayer warriors who I'll keep nameless, but four foot two, Filipino, Come up to me and say, I know something was wrong. I felt the tap on my shoulder. And I was praying for you. And I was thinking like Atlas, holding the world, right? You had no idea what you were holding. Only person who knew was my daughter, who randomly came with me because it was just a simple stress test. How important, how big deal can a stress test be? When it's me, turns out it could be big. And as normal goes for me, a simple stress test could have killed me. And I got somebody feeling something, praying. I don't know what's going on with my pastor right now, but I think he needs me. And so, Lord, whatever he's doing. Church, this, this small, beautiful body of Christ has prayer warriors in here. If you have not been privileged to meet the Jewish princess, then I pray that one day you would. 
Because there's a lady in here that if you need it, I can think of no other person in the world that I would bring a care to and say, would you go after this in front of the Lord? Would you petition this in front of the Lord until you wear him out? Because I believe that she would day and night until I asked her to stop, she would do exactly that. How strong do you have to be to be useful in the church? I can't carry chairs anymore. Can you carry a load, brother or sister? Can you carry a load? Then get on your knees and get to work. Because there's work that needs to be done. There's salvations that need to happen. There's neighbors in this place right now that are surrounded by, that don't know Jesus Christ. And we have a high calling on our life to get them on the road to Damascus so that they can meet the risen Savior. And he's waiting to call them out and say by name, why are you kicking against the goad? Why are you kicking against me? Why are you fighting me? I have something for you. I will never forsake you, he says. I will never forsake you. I will never leave you. Do you feel alone? How many are just overwhelmed and convinced right now how alone you feel? That is not from God. It is physically impossible for you as a follower of Christ to be alone. You are never alone, church. Never. Do not succumb to feeling alone. That's not true. You're never alone. I will never, not me, I definitely will, right? I will never leave you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Hold him accountable for what he says. And then do what with it? Take that blessed hope and go live in such a way that changes lives. The results of this. Do you remember all the way back in chapter 4 what the church prayed for? I mean, we're a long ways down the road in chapter 9. But do you remember the word in chapter 4 when the church decided we wanted to do something that was different? We wanted to be effective for the kingdom of God, so let's pray for something. And what did the church pray for in chapter 4? Starts with bold and ends with ness. Boldness. Good job, John. Excellent. Boldness. They didn't pray for you know, blend us in and hide us in and camouflage us. Boldness. I tell you who's bold right now. The world is bold right now. Right now, the, the world is bold and cocky about how they're living. That's not the kind of boldness I'm talking about, church. I'm talking about the kind of boldness that says we have to be loving, but not a banging gong or a banging cymbal. And I'm so bold that I've already gone over my time limit. Verse 27 through 29 starts talking about how Paul continued to speak boldly. If you want to do something differently, then get away from being afraid of speaking and take a chance like Paul that if the word of God has to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, it may have to go through you. And so the very Hellenist people that Paul was working with to kill Stephen, remember Stephen was the first martyr, he was a Hellenist Jew, are now getting back together and they're putting Paul in their sights. And they're going to go after him for everything that he has done and said. And he knows how powerful they are because he's already killed other people. And he has to realize something, that if my conversion means anything to anybody, then the Lord is going to work this out, that even though they're going to put together their best attempts, their attempts are going to fall at the feet of the Lord. Shipwrecked, bitten by snakes, stoned, lashed, beaten, hungry, out in the cold, lost at sea, and with every single attempt and failure, one thing continues to be established in Saul's life. When the Lord's ready to take me home, I'm going. But until then, man, you have nothing to say about it, so I'm going to trust God with it. I'm going to choose this day who I'm going to serve, and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. And if somebody wants to take advantage of it, praise God. And if nobody wants to take advantage of it, praise God. But either way, I'm throwing seeds every day. When you get people's attention, they're going to be all up on you. And Paul is getting people's attention, and it will definitely cost him. When we get to the end of what it's going to cost him, it's going to cost him everything. But along the way, he's using that cost to build the kingdom of God. 
And he's never turning it back at the Lord saying, this is not fair. This is not what I signed up for. And would you mind tuning down the heat a little bit in the oven? He's simply saying, if this is what's required every single day, then this is what I'll do. And it continued to ramp up. It continued to increase. Verse says, it ramped up to such a point that they had no choice but to drive him down to Caesarea and take him away to Tarsus. They literally have to move him off scene. And verse 31 talks about, and then, because he's off scene, they enjoyed peace for a period of time. And they were being built up because they continued in the fear of the Lord. And the comfort of the Holy Spirit was leading. And they kept on increasing. Church, if there's something that I'm seriously praying for earnestly right now in the church and for the future as we kind of look forward to things, is that we would be blessed by the Spirit of God to keep increasing. Our goal is not to maintain and hold the line. Okay? We were never called to hold the line. We're going to hold fast in God's Word, and we're going to call others in to join us, but we want the kingdom of God to increase. That means the population headed for hell will decrease, right? And if there's anything that we know about the miracle of salvation is that God's individual story with each person is a beautiful and wonderful thing, and it's far more powerful than the miracle of a healing, right? Because healing, you still have to face death. With the miracle of salvation, you no longer have to face death. Death, where is your sting? What? in you this morning is the most valuable thing. If I asked you to get a piece of paper and write down and list them in the top three things, what would you list right now as the most valuable attribute in your life? If you list houses, cars, money, 401k, or anything that has any form of worldly association, I simply want to encourage you to take a deep breath and get a new piece of paper. Because none of those things is where your happiness is, right? There's no hearse there's no U-Haul behind a hearse. We asked Tom. He sells the hearses. Do you, do you include a U-Haul with every hearse you buy? I mean, for 180000 you guys should include some things, man. I'm just saying, you know. A tow truck, you know, a little trailer. No, right? It's like, it's not your stuff. All that stuff you labored for all your life, church, will just be somebody's table and a three-by-five card and some kind of divvy system. Not going to mean anything. And in enough time, it's just going to be dust. And then it'll be my opportunity to buy it at the Salvation Army when it reaches my income, right? It's just stuff. But if you leave salvation behind, if you leave the legacy of your faith behind, what have you really left? Exactly. You've left the opportunity to be with the person that you love forever. If you really want to tell someone you love them, if they're a friend or a family member, then if you really love someone and you want to be with them, then be with them forever. Leave them the legacy of hope that comes from salvation. What is it that you're most afraid of today? In light of what hope offers you, in light of what hope offered Saul, in light of what hope made Paul, I, I would ask you to think about it. What are you afraid of today? What did you come in here today? What was your biggest fear? That little skin thing that's on your arm? Ooh, skin cancer. You didn't know you were going to die? I'm just saying, time out. You didn't know you were going to die? D do any of it is appointed once to be born, and it's been appointed for once for man to die. So it's already set in stone. No matter what your doctor tells you tomorrow for the record, church, it's not news to God. That being said, why should it be news to you? You'll go when the Lord's ready for you. And you will go in the way and the manner that he knew you were going to go. And if anyone else thinks it has any kind of control over it, talk to any one of our survivors in earth cancer. Right? Jeannie has a fabulous book on cancer, by the way. Every form of known cancer has been survived. And within the book that you have that you share with people that are going through cancer is the actual little story from an individual who's gone through A, B, C, D, every kind, right? Any cancer person want to talk to a cancer survivor right here, front row, okay? You have nothing to fear. Oh, but you're going to die in six days. You really think you can tell me when I'm going to die? I'm going to die when the good Lord is ready for me to go. And until then, I have work to do. And until then, you have work to do. And it's to share the hope of that salvation that's in you that was given to you on the cross. I mean, when people say, oh, the gift of salvation is free. Does that look free to you? Does that look free? Anything about that look free to you? The most barbaric we hang, it's like we've hung an electric chair. We've hung the most 
sadistic form and way to kill a human being. We've hung it up there, and we put lights on it, and we call it beautiful. Why? Because it's salvation to us. But there's nothing free about any form or action that took place on that cross. Let's go at this in such a way that the boldness that the church prayed for is on its way back. Let us once again pray for boldness, that we might live in such a way that my neighbor cannot walk by me again with me just saying hi. It's time. 20 years with that neighbor walking by, it's time for you to walk out there and say, is everything okay? I've watched you for 20 years, and I've noticed your countenance has changed, your demeanor has changed. Are you okay? Is there, can, I, can I get you something? Do you need help at your house? Is there any? Find a way to communicate that you're paying attention to a human being and ask if you can intercede in their life. Invite the Lord to speak to you in such a way that you can put yourself in the path of someone who may have serious need. You don't know where they are. You don't know what they're going through. And maybe that day is that hope we talked about in the beginning. Maybe it's not the solution, but it's part of the answer to give them the hope that they need to get through that day. One final thing, and then I'm going to pray. There's a lady who's not at the church right now. Everyone knows her. She's very interesting. She's very eclectic. As her time has come and gone in the church over the last few years, one thing I've noticed, she comes, she fills her tank, she goes. She goes back into the world that she lives and she knows, and it chews her up. And then she reaches the threshold to where she's hopeless and she's overwhelmed. She has lots of resources. She has lots of different things that the world say would be pretty cool. But you know who she calls? People in the church. And she calls very specific people in the church. Why? Because they're there to offer the hope of Jesus Christ back into that life again. Because even if you have everything the world says you need, if you don't have the hope of Jesus Christ in your life, living, breathing, and active, you are one desperate human being. Don't, don't be shy, church, about having what you have and saying it's mine, little Bugs Bunny, you know, mine, mine, mine. It's not ours. It's his. And he freely gave it to us. And we need to freely give it to all those around us. May the hope of the salvation in Jesus Christ this morning be your source of encouragement and strength. And if it's not, then I would ask, as I ask the worship team to come back up and get ready to pray, you would join me in prayer. Father God, this morning, I know there's somebody out there that's going to hear this message. Maybe there's someone in here today and maybe it was specifically for someone. Maybe someone heard it this morning and thought, that's exactly what I needed. It's exactly what I've been waiting for. Then for that individual this morning, Father, would the Spirit of God seal and indwell that message in such a way that it cannot be stolen from them ever again. Because this is not a one-off message. This is not a message that we can just give once and move on to the next. We don't have to leave this message. I can, I can put this on a three-by-five card and put it on my mirror and look at it every single morning and remind me that the hope of salvation that was given to Saul on the road to Damascus didn't go away after a day. It didn't go away after an hour or a week or a month or a year. It stayed with him until he met you, Father, even to die as a martyr. It gave him the strength to say that no matter what the world throws at me, shipwrecked, fine. Lost at sea, floating around in the ocean at nighttime, fabulous. Whatever it is, however it's going to come, I believe that when you're ready for me, then I'm going. But until then, Father, I want to live boldly. I need to share this with my neighbor. How, how can I let my neighbor walk by me day after day after day? How do I let my coworker sit in their cubicle and I simply walk by and I say, hey, it's it's time to stop saying, hey, it's time to take a chance. It's time to pray before I get up and say, I'm going to the cubicle and I'm going in, Lord. May the words of Jesus Christ fill my heart. Speak to the lost, speak to the wounded, speak to the broken. Speak to the parent that has that prodigal. Speak to the person that has cancer. Speak to the person that's thinking, you don't know how many stints I have in my heart. Church, I don't, it doesn't matter how many stints you have in your heart. You have a heart that beats to the rhythm of a father in heaven. And when he's ready for you, it will beat its last. But until then, with every beat that's in it, may you live in such a way that the boldness of your salvation and the hope that is Jesus Christ overflows. 
If you're here today and you didn't know that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, then I pray right now that you, like the thief on the cross, would turn towards the cross and say this, Lord, remember me. Forgive me of my sins, my waywardness, my inability to manage my own life. I choose you. I choose your salvation. I choose forgiveness. Come into my life. Rule and reign. And do this in the name above all names. Great job, Jeff. I, I was thinking about when, as you were talking, I was going, you really have grown when you're comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that's what Christianity is all about. It's not, it's not an easy thing. Christianity really is about leaning into the pain. And I say this because I so need to do this on so many levels, but leaning into the trouble, leaning into the pain, and being comfortable with us, because that's where God really says, gotcha now. And uh, yeah, good words, Jeff. Let's everybody stand on this. We're just going to do this last song. Last week, everybody. Just a reminder we need help with the chairs. 
So anybody who could stay and give a hand, it would be awesome. Thank you.